HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, a really interesting development in as much as um, there is an entity known as the Urban School Food Alliance. And they recently announced that they would no longer purchase chickens that had been raised with prophylactic use of antibiotics. Needless to say, they have immense buying power. We're talking about five major cities with enormous uh, school districts. Um, just to give you an idea of the scale we're talking about, just New York City alone serves 860,000 meals a day within their school system. So we're talking about a lot of chicken. So to help us uh, sort of um, review this uh, new announcement from both sides of the aisle, as it were, um, I asked uh, Dr. John Glisson to join me. He is with the, um, the National Chicken Council. He is currently the Vice President of Research at the U.S. Poultry and Egg Association in Tucker, Georgia. He recently retired as head of the Department of Population Health at the University of Georgia. He was head of the Department of Avian Medicine and was Associate Dean of Public Service and Outreach at the University of Georgia's College of Veterinary Medicine. He is the past president of the American Association of Avian Pathologists and has received numerous honors for his work. He received his Bachelor of Science degree in Biology from Valdosta State and a Doctorate of veter Veterinary Medicine and a Master's degree in Avian Medicine uh, from the University of Georgia. Uh, Dr. Glisson, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really excited to, to, to talk with you about this. Oh, thank you, Katie. Thanks for uh, inviting me to be a part of this. Uh, well, I like, even though I do not support the use of antibiotics in agriculture, and, and you know, I will make no bones about that, um, I do always like to get uh, sort of the industry side of the story. Otherwise, it's a very one-sided conversation, and, um, and I, I've never felt that that was completely fair. Now, the, the NCC recently published a press release in response to this antibiotic announcement from the National Urban School Food Alliance, and one of the statements... Um, uh, well, the very first statement was, we support consumer and student choice, but we strongly caution against food trends that are not fully supported by science, 
will introduce higher costs into the food system and offer no benefit to public health. Help me deconstruct this sentence uh, from that press release. Because, I mean, from all of that I know and have read, um, and many of my guests uh, in the past would completely disagree with you in terms of this being a food trend not supported by science. Help me understand that. Well, you know, these things are complicated. And, And part of the complication is that you know, the science is reported in scientific journals, which makes it very difficult for people to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I would refer you to a, a recent paper um, in a journal called Evolutionary Applications. It was actually published by uh, the Harvard School of Public Health, mm-hmm. uh, which is the most prestigious group probably in the world on this subject. And what they did is they reviewed the literature on this whole topic. Yeah. And the, and the uh, title of the paper was antibiotics in agriculture and the risk to human health mm-hmm. how worries should how worried should we be and i'll just read you a couple of little things out of the discussion excellent and you know this is their conclusions while the concern is not unwarranted the extent of the problem may be exaggerated there is no evidence that agriculture is largely to blame for the increase in resistant strains and we should not be distracted from finding adequate ways to ensure appropriate antibiotic use in all settings, the most important of which being clinical medicine. And then they go on to say, from the proportion of antibiotics by weight used in agriculture as opposed to human medicine, it does not follow that the majority of selective pressure on human pathogens, let alone the majority of human health impact of antibiotic resistance, results from agricultural uses. So, you know, when you look at it kind of dispassionately and and look at the facts, it's really difficult to point the the big finger of blame on agriculture. Now, having said that, uh, the thing that results in antibiotic resistance is the antibiotic use. Wherever, wherever antibiotics are used, you're going to get resistance. So, mm-hmm. It's really a, a very complex issue that's been very hard to uh, ferret out exactly which things are contributing the most. But as the Harvard group says, uh, it's very difficult to uh, put the primary blame on agriculture. Well, you may not want to put the primary blame on agriculture, but um, certainly some of this, uh, some of the uh, strains of salmonella, for example, that have emerged in the last 10, 15 years, such as Heidelberg, Salmonella, Tifimurium, um, and others, uh, certainly do point the finger at animal agriculture as their origin. Um, and, I, and I was wondering, I was curious, uh, I know that your, um, your colleague Tom Super sent me a, a number of abstracts to look at. Um, none of them, by the way, was the, the Harvard uh, uh, public health group that you just quoted from but That's rather paper. yeah oh, right from uh, but rather from the niaa national institute of animal agriculture um a symposium which i participated in myself as well as um a numerous other uh documents from dr scott hurd who i know or knew and uh who was a guest on this program and uh, anyway my point is is that they 
you know, none of these documents uh, included uh, the studies from the CDC, from NARMS, the National Antibiotic Resistance Monitoring System, um, or the World Health Organization, all of whom uh, have very much raised the red flag about um, animal agriculture being a, the culprit in a number of multidrug resistant strains of pathogens. So why, why are those not included in your in the thinking uh, bet- behind, uh, you know, within the animal agriculture community? Those are, Katie, those are all included in the Harvard paper. Mm-hmm. What they did is carefully looked at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's all very much included in this paper. And this, the paper that I just gave you is, is the real milestone work in this whole area. I, uh, would you send me the link to that, by the way? I, absolutely. I'd really I like to read it. That would be PDF. great. I'll Thank you, you so much. I'll send you a PDF, and you can make it available to all your listeners. Oh, and I it's will. actually yes. fairly readable. You know, uh-huh. with any of these scientific papers, there's some jargon that you can get bogged down in. Right. But it's, it's much more readable than most. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I was thinking, like, um, help us to understand what what is at stake uh, for poultry producers when major contracts like uh, these school districts um, change the rules on their procurement. What, what, what is that going to do to the poultry production sector? Can you comment well, on it, that? It, what it does is it creates a market. If, you know, agriculture essentially responds to the market and, and tries to give the consumer what it wants. Mm-hmm. So if there's a market for antibiotic-free chicken, then the poultry industry will respond to that and produce it. And which has been going on for some time. This, yeah. this, this is uh, a big order, essentially. Uh, but the companies will respond to that. And, and so as, as this happens then, uh, companies gear up to, to produce chickens in this way. But it, it's not what people think. You can't say, for example, we're no longer going to use antibiotics in chickens and no chickens will ever get sick. That's not what happens. I don't think that's what consumers are expecting. I think what they're looking at is, and what they feel concerned about, is the routine use of antibiotics in a prophylactic, either as a disease preventative or as a growth promotant. I think that that's that's what concerns consumers. Obviously, no one wants to see an animal go untreated if it's ill. Yeah. Well, I think you're you're fully aware that the the FDA is phasing out the use of antibiotics for those purposes Mm. and... uh, Right now, it's in the voluntary phase. It will come mandatory at the end of 2016. So mm-hmm. many companies have already stopped, and uh, and then other companies are phasing out during this period. So by the end of 2016, all those uses will be stopped uh, across the board. So disease prevention, you think, will be stopped? I mean, I know that they have to stop using it as a growth promotant, but can they still use it as a prophylactic disease prevention? They'll... The FDA will only allow the use of medically important antibiotics for therapeutic usage mm-hmm. after the end of 2016. So that and means only with a veterinary prescription. Right. I've often wondered, and I, I had this conversation with Scott Hurd before he passed. Um, you know how how will uh, veterinary medicine cope with uh, the fact that they will now be required to write prescriptions uh, when they're given that there are so few vets who work within the agricultural sector. What do you think is, is going to happen with that? How will well, they do, how now, will they do you know, that? we have technology. So uh, technology will be used to communicate the needs, communicate the prescriptions. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, a veterinarian now in the poultry industry um, is in charge of large numbers of animals. And so those, 
have to do that remotely and, and uh, using all the technology that we have now. What technology would that be? I mean, can you can you actually like look at flocks and determine whether or not there's a cause for concern, or or a producer will contact a vet and say, uh, you know, one of my birds has blah blah blah. I need to treat my whole flock. I mean, can is that still going to be uh, an acceptable use of antibiotics? The way it's done, Katie, because mm-hmm. of, there's so many flocks and so many birds. Yeah, vet, veterinarians nine billion. Yeah, veterinarians. <laughs> train uh, people to be their eyes and ears, and uh, so these are what we call the technicians that are on the farms every day. I see. And and these people are the eyes and ears for the veterinarians. They're trained to uh, recognize clinical signs of disease. Mm -hmm. They're trained to do autopsies, and what they do is simply call the veterinarian. They send photographs, and so a veterinarian can multiply his... uh, his or her abilities through technology now to really oversee large numbers of animals. Mm-hmm. But the whole key is training people to be the eyes and ears. The veterinarian can't be everywhere mm-hmm. at all times. So this actually has been going on for a long time and is already set in place. And mm-hmm. it's not like we're having to figure out how to do it. It's being done today, mm-hmm. and it works very, very well, actually. You know, I wanted to ask you, I, uh, I'm sure you know that uh, Purdue announced uh, recently, and also Tyson, but they've, all, they've both announced um, uh, various uh, changes to their antibiotic use within their uh, companies. And Purdue, in particular, agreed to uh, stop using gentamicin in their hatcheries. And um, the thing that struck me about that is that the, uh, the sort of the spokesman for Purdue said it took them 12 years to figure out how to phase antibiotics out of uh, hatcheries. You know, what are the implications uh, of that statement uh, to other producers? Like, why does it take 12 years to figure that out? And, and will it take 12 more years to really figure it out in terms of growing out birds, as, uh, say, Tyson is now 95% antibiotic-free in their flocks? What about the other producers? What are they doing? The other producers are doing the same thing. They're mm-hmm. just not announcing it, mm-hmm. and they've, they've been doing it all along. So Purdue and Tyson have had press releases and, and gotten a lot of media coverage. They're big companies, but yes. the other companies are doing the same thing. So um, I don't know that they're ahead of anybody else. They're just uh, announcing it ahead of anybody else. Right. Uh, one, one of the key things that the FDA learned because we get to watch other countries, is is in the European Union a few years ago, just in one fell swoop, they decided no more antibiotics in food animals. Yes. And did not give the companies the time it took to adjust to that. And it was a disaster. I was in the middle of all that, trying to help those people at the time. And the amount of sickness they induced in animals unnecessarily was really uh, ugly. Mm-hmm. And FDA is very aware of that. So the FDA, and, and I have to applaud them for this and their wisdom, because they've taken a lot of heat for this. They understand that was not the way to do it, that the companies have to adjust to this shift, mm-hmm. and it takes some time. Right. And, right. and so, for example, with growth-promoting antibiotics, they said, here's our time frame. You've got this much time to adjust to this and voluntarily come off of them. At the 20, end of 2016, you have to be off. Mm-hmm. But that, is, that, that has been incredibly insightful. The FDA has done that. Now, they've taken tons of heat for it, 
And they knew they were going to take heat for it, but they knew they were doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. The end result is going to be for our consumer in this country, they're going to get a wholesome product at a good cost. Mm -hmm. We're not going to have the disease disasters that occurred in the European Union, which we all got to see, which was not headlines at the time, but those of us that are involved in it uh, got to see it, and it was really ugly. So we've had the opportunity to learn from other people's mistakes, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's a wonderful thing that we've been able to do this. Yeah. Well, I actually, I followed that uh, that whole story because, you know, the Danish experiment is always bandied about as like, oh, my God, this is such a disaster. But in fact, um, after that initial spike in mortality, um, their numbers have come right back and uh, they have done very well and, in fact, remain an extremely profitable sector, certainly in Dan- in Denmark um, and in other parts of the. So it, clearly it can be done. I think you're right in saying that phasing it out gradually is probably a better idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But it, it ultimately, it has worked well, and I'm sure that that that, pulled, that producers in the agricultural sector have taken note that it does work. So let me ask you this, Doc, because we only have a couple more minutes. As a vet and an expert on avian husbandry, what measures are producers going to take um, to reduce their dependence on uh, prophylactic use of antibiotics? What are they What are they going to do that they haven't done before? And how, and do you have a sense of how much that will cost? Well, it's been going on for some time. This is this is not something new and exciting for us. We've seen it coming for a long time. So, the 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 main problem, Katie, for for your folks to understand is that the antibiotics have been used, although it's been called for growth promotion, it's been used to prevent disease, primarily intestinal diseases in mm-hmm. birds. And so, we've been looking at alternative ways to control those diseases and. Like at U.S. Poultry and Egg Association, we have a tremendous research program, and we've been funding for years uh, projects to look at alternative ways to control these intestinal diseases that birds have that we've been relying on antibiotics for, and we've made great progress in that. The net effect is is, uh, we're changing the way that we do these things. The cost will be higher. And, you know, the consumer will have to bear some of that cost, but the cost will not be egregious. It's not going to break the bank. But, you know, the cost of producing chicken is going to go up some uh, as a result of this. Is that because there will be increased mortality in flocks, or is that because they have to build out different infrastructure? What What do you think is behind those costs going up? Well, it's, it's multifactorial. Because aren't antibiotics uh, the expensive? The whole diet has to be changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the husbandry methods have to be changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the disease control methods have to be changed. All of those things have a, have a certain cost, and the cost is cumulative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the poultry industry is very positive about all this, and mm-hmm. You know, if this is what the consumer wants, then, and, you know, the poultry industry will figure out a way to supply the product that they want. Uh, but it's not magic. Everything has a, everything has a, a cost. There, there are issues involved that have to be solved. Some of them we don't yet fully know how to do. Um, but, but everybody's making progress. And, and, you know, I'm very optimistic that uh, the poultry industry will do what it's always done, which is, produce what the consumer wants and produce it at a price they can afford Mm -hmm. and produce a very wholesome product for the consumer. It's always been kind of the mainstay of uh, cheap protein, affordable protein for the the public, and uh, I'm sure we'll figure out how to keep doing that. Um, Interesting. 
interesting point. Um, I, I, we could we could have another conversation. I think we probably should. But just as an aside, and this is like totally off topic, but I recently somebody sent me something about roxarsone, which is you know the arsenic-based drug that's used to con- control coccidiosis. Yeah. And my understanding was that roxarsone was being phased out of uh, the poultry sector. But it's been off the market for several for years. several years. But isn't there another drug that is pretty similar to that? Nitrozone is that what it's called? It's used in in turkeys to control a disease called uh-huh. uh, histomonas. Uh huh. It, so it's, it's not similar, used it's in chicken. It's similar chicken. but different. It's not used in in chicken. But it's still a, an arsenic based drug. It's an organic arsenic. But then uh, when it's excreted, it becomes inorganic arsenic, which is then uh, spread on fields and becomes a, a an environmental issue. Very little Isn't that of it true? comes in organic. <laughs> <laughs> Very little. But, yes, some of it does. Some of it does. Doc, <laughs> you tagging with somebody who does her homework here. <laughs> anyway. Um, t- I could give you some more homework. Would you like some more homework? You know what? I would welcome anything you want to send me. I really would. I mean, my, my you know, I have my ideas. You know, they're based on what I read. Um, yes. But I am always happy to read you know, the other side of the story. And, and hey. as I said, always happy to, to welcome somebody from industry to give their side of the story. That's why I'm drilling down on the economics of this and why I want to know, like, how much will this cost? What does it take? How does it have, you know, what impact does it have on the farmers who do this job? Um, you know, those are the things that, that have an impact on ultimately, you know, whether or not it really, we succeed in, uh, in phasing out antibiotics uh, in disease prevention as well as growth promotion. And we could have a whole debate about the disease prevention sure. thing um, well you know what katie i'm not that i'm not into debating but hey you know not? i'm i'm basically a, a farmer and also yeah. a scientist which is an odd sort of combo but not really if, if you want uh you know really good science-based information yes i'm your guy you know i'll try to help you i'll send you stuff you can post it to your listeners and you know, just let them read it. Like this Harvard article. Mm-hmm. I would really um, like to I'm see that. I'm going to send that to you, and, and you take a look at it and let other people look at it. And I, sure. I think you will enjoy it. You'll you'll see that, and I think you already know this, that that uh, the question is complex and the yes. answer is difficult to understand. Yes, it is. Well, Doc, upon that note, we must uh, say goodbye for now. But okay. uh, I have the feeling you and I will be talking again. I really enjoyed the conversation, and thank you so very much for joining us today. Okay, um, thanks, This is really cool. Yeah, take care. Hey, Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. Um, right. And so now we'll have a quick sponsor drop with Kane Winery, and, uh, and then we'll pick it up uh, with um, a representative from Natural Resources Defense Council. Mark Eisenman, as well as Eric Goldstein, uh, who is the president of the Urban School Food Alliance. So stay, stay with us, folks. we got more to come. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com.
We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We are broadcasting from Roberta's in Bushwick. This is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, so to d- now we are going to be joined by um, Eric uh, Goldstein from the Urban School Food Alliance and Mark Eisenman from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, and they are the ones who sort of spearheaded this uh, groundbreaking initiative of changing buying practices for major school districts across the country. Um, so, um, Eric, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the Urban School Food Alliance and how you came to this decision about changing your poultry purchasing uh, protocols. Sure. And let me start by saying thanks for having me on. It's uh, a great honor. Much appreciated. (laughs) I love that. Great (laughs) honor. I like that. Mm, I'm going to wear a glow all day now. (laughs) (laughs) The the Urban School Food Alliance was started really um, out of a need for some large urban cities. And I should say the alliance is New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, Dallas, and Orlando. Wow try to do better than we could individually, to collectively really try to draw down value mm-hmm. to our school districts. Even though we're, we're large and we could each do things on our own, we felt collectively we could do that much more, uh, have a real impact not only on what we're doing for our, our individual districts, but also part of the national debate and dialogue. And, yeah. you know, we started first with paper plates and trying to replace the polystyrene trays that we use, which yeah. uh, we're excited is uh, well underway and will start being implemented in our cafeterias in September. And we're also looking not only at uh, the plates and utensils, but also the food itself. And we decided in working closely with the NRDC that we really wanted to try to turn and nudge the market for school food towards antibiotic-free, you know, vegetarian-fed uh, chicken. We mm-hmm. felt that would make a uh, a really big and important statement. Uh, it would benefit yes. the ultimately the lives of our children in the school down the road, and we felt that's a direction we very much wanted to head. Mm-hmm. And let me ask you this, though. I mean, especially in light of the conversation I just had with Dr. Glisson from the uh, National uh, Chicken Council, what, what do you guys see as the danger in serving regular commodity poultry? The industry thinks it's safe, and so do most Americans. What's the problem with it? Yeah, no, it's safe, and that's not that's not our issue with it. Mm-hmm. But the question is, how do we how do we evolve? How do we show progress? Mm-hmm. And you know what we're worried about is the overuse of antibiotics in in chicken. Right. You know, look, we live in a market driven country, and if the market demands certain changes, it gets those certain changes. The organics movement came out of that. Yep. Uh, which is not to say that non organic food isn't safe. But organic food is a better value. Uh-huh. Uh, and if we can move towards that, whether it's in milk, whether that's in fruit, that's a real positive. And the same thing goes for chicken. So working closely with the technical expertise at the NRDC, you know, we came to the realization that there's an overuse of non-therapeutic antibiotics in the poultry sector. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we just didn't like. Yeah. And we thought by using, pardon the pun, a carrot versus a stick, we could steer the market in the right direction and by amassing together big volume through our standards. We could push prices to the point where they could become affordable to us. So this is about how we make progress, not accepting the status quo for what it is. I love that. You guys are fabulous. Now, Mark, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, uh, thanks so much for joining. Thank you also for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love having my NRDC peeps on. Um, So tell me how NRDC got involved with the Urban School Food Alliance. How did you guys connect? 
Well, we NRDC has been working on food across the country for many yeah. years, and in fact, in really decades on agriculture issues. And in more recent years, we were very interested in school food mm-hmm. for a lot of the same reasons that uh, Eric was interested. Uh, right. Many of the kids in these schools are economically disadvantaged. Uh, for many of these kids, this is the most important meal of the day they have. Yeah. So school food is really a food justice issue. And we got a meeting a couple of years ago, and I honestly, and I've told Eric this, I wasn't sure whether that meeting would end in an adversarial tone, um, <laughs> because we were ready to really push them. And yeah. we were pleasantly surprised that he was ahead of us and wanted our help awesome. in moving forward on, on chicken and other things. And so... Uh, it's been a partnership ever since. Yeah, I'd love to see more institutions doing this. I mean, I know that some hospitals are getting together and uh, leveraging their buying power to buy, uh, you know, change their protocols up. And, and I'd love to see more hotels. And, uh, you know, what about the prison system? I mean, that's ripe for the picking, too, right? Um, now, let's let's move right to the NRD, uh, excuse me, the uh, National Chicken Council uh, press release, which I'm assuming that you guys read, right? You read that? Yes. That that document. Yep. Right. So um, one of the things that really blew my mind and, you know, admittedly, Dr. Glisson had very good uh, points, but he, it starts with several scientific peer reviewed risk assessments demonstrate that resistance is emerging in animals and tra- that resistance that is emerging in animals and transferring to humans does not happen in measurable amounts, if at all. Huh? What? Wait, why are we worried if that's the case? Like what, you know, where are they getting this, their information? I mean, they sent me a peer reviewed uh, bunch of documents, which actually I had read a lot of them. Um, And they were all from two sources, Scott Hurd or from um, something called Cox and Associates, a statistical analysis firm in Denver. Um, But I didn't see anything from CDC, NARMS, et cetera. Um, Although Dr. Glisson quoted from the Harvard uh, School of Public Health uh, study that came out recently. But, but what, you know, like how do they get away with saying that this doesn't happen if everybody's so worried about it? I don't understand. Well, I, I can, I'll just jump in and then let Eric, this is Mark again. Yeah. I mean, all we can say is that you have a, a number of groups, the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, yeah. even the FDA saying that this is a problem. These are not wild-eyed you know, organizations. Right. They're not and PETA so, or Mercy for Animals. You know, so uh, you have just really sort of a, a huge body of scientific literature that is talking about the the concerns of antibiotic resistance and and the connection um, to uh, how we treat our animals on a lot of these farms. So Mm -hmm. we haven't had, or at least I have personally haven't had a chance to read that report, but you have, you know, a whole list of pretty esteemed uh, scientific bodies that are saying this is a problem. Yes, and, and apparently they were aggregated in this Harvard report, which I also have not read. He's sending it to me, so if you want, I will send it to you. Um, I definitely do want to read it because I do want to see you know, what they're saying about this not promote, uh, not comprising much of a risk to human health. And then the other statement that they said that kind of blew my mind um, was it was sort of the opening statement, we support consumer and student choice. We strongly caution against food trends that are not fully supported by science, that will introduce higher costs into the food system, and offer no benefit to public health. I, you know, first of all, they seem to be categorizing what most would agree is a major public health threat as a trend. And then they suggest that the emergence of these multidrug-resistant pathogens has not been proved. And then I also introduced, I also interpreted the introduce higher costs into the food system statement as a kind of threat. Um, what did you guys think of that? 
Well, let me just uh, back up a second and sure. point out there was a point in American history where, you know, the tobacco industry told you smoking was good for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you mean, I mean it's, it's not? not? We're not at that stage today, <laughs> but that existed at some point. Yes. And, you know, look, you're always going to find dissenters. That's the wonderful thing about, you know, our country is that all these different points of view. But I think the main thing is, you know, we do live in a, a market-driven society, mm-hmm. and this segment of the market is saying very loudly, very clearly, uh, where we want to go and yeah. what we believe. And right now it is true that it is a small part of the market segment, and it may always be a small part of the market segment. I don't know. But that's where we want to go. And I should point out we're not alone. There's a big part of the right. retail chicken segment that wants antibiotic-free chicken. There yes. is some of the fast food restaurants like Chick-fil-A, yep. who is um, – you know, they're, they, they run a very hard-nosed business, uh, yeah. and they've got plenty of faults, I know, but, you know, they've decided they want to head in this direction. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think, you know, I guess you can categorize it if you want to disparage it a little bit as a trend, but I think people have made up their mind, and, you know, things do evolve, and this is the direction that the markets want to go, and it will be up to the companies to decide if they want to meet the need, and I guarantee you there will be many of them that do because my phone's been ringing off the hook. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating uh, to me, the um, these trade organizations like the National Chicken Council, um, and let's just talk about for a minute about trade organizations in general within the agricultural sector. Um, you know, I found this press release uh, really kind of astonishing in so many ways, but especially because it disparaged science, which I know has been uh, categorically proven in many cases, even though there still remain outliers who say, no, that's not really what's happening. Um but also the idea that this is this is a trend versus uh, you know an evolution or part of a, an evolution of the industry, and what I note about trade organizations, and you guys correct me if you think I'm wrong. I, I'm happy to be corrected, um, but I feel like these trade organizations actually hold uh, companies and individual producers back in terms of responding to market pressure. Um, for reasons of their own. And I don't quite understand what those reasons are. But, um, you know, the resistance to change in terms of agricultural protocols involving antibiotic use, for example, um, has been extraordinary. I mean, I've been to a lot of these symposia with the Animal Agricultural Alliance and the National Institute of Animal Ag. And these guys will fall over themselves to try to disprove that this is an issue rather than say, okay, the consumer has won. This is what we need to do. What are we going to do to make it happen? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, certainly. So why I do mean, you think um, that they are? Look, I, I, can't, I can't speak to that whole point, but on this point, there are companies that have been more than willing to talk to us about how they're going to meet the demand. Mm-hmm. We know, certainly in the school food segment, where we're very price sensitive, uh, that we have to sort of you know, phase these things in and do so in a responsible way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we are, as the consumer, wholly convinced that this is both an important and necessary thing to do now. And yeah. that's certainly the direction we're going to head. And then the market will respond to us. Right. And that's, that's the way America works. So, um, um, Eric, tell us a little bit about um, the economic uh, leverage that you guys have. When you, when you band together six big cities as you are with the Urban School Food Alliance and, uh, and you make a, an announcement like this, what kind of money are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars in spending mm-hmm. on chicken. I mean, I you know, it's it's a lot of money for school food. I mean, I don't know that it's going to make or break any large chicken company. Um, but, you know, it does, I think, from their point of view, point to a trend. And 
introduce probably more quickly than they would have liked mm-hmm. uh, a change that's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, again, we're part of a, a larger trend. There are you know, moms and dads out there who want this for their children. Yes. There are the quick service restaurants, the fast food chains that decide this is going to give them uh, a competitive advantage. And then you have a segment like us, which are the school cafeterias, which decide that from a public health point of view, this is an important contribution we can make now. And it's our hope and our desire that other school districts that are not direct members of the alliance follow our lead. Uh-huh. That would be that would be for us just thrilling. Absolutely. Well, do you have other school districts, uh, you know, approaching you to say, how can we do this? What you know, what does it take? How much does it cost? What's what is the cost differential? Like, how much more will you have to pay for antibiotic free chicken? Well, I don't know is the answer. I mean, it'll <laughs> definitely okay. be a little bit. You're allowed not more. to. Know. I mean, we we got to go through the bidding process. I mm-hmm. mean, I know that Los Angeles. Uh, this coming year, and these are standards uh, that we're putting out as the alliance. So L.A. is coming out with their bid, and I think around February, March, and then Orlando, I think Miami and New York, New York City will be uh, a little later in 2015 mm-hmm. to release our bid. Uh, but, you know, what we want to see from our point of view is healthy competition out there, companies that are trying to sort of fall over themselves to win some of this business in the K-12 to market because – that's where we're heading. So we expect to see a little bit of a premium. The exact premium, I don't know. But yeah. we feel we can absorb that by moving around other items on our menu because it's more of an art than a science. Uh-huh. But it's just that important to us. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's incredibly important. I think it's amazing that you've made a statement like this. Now, do you think uh, higher education will follow suit? Do you see uh, colleges and universities um, putting together the same kinds of alliances? Not that they're the uh- same, but, you know, like state schools or something like that. I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, you don't need to be a scientist to know pumping a, a chicken full of drugs is just not a good thing, right? <laughs> it's just not a good thing. It can't yeah. be a good thing no matter how anybody can explain it away. And I think that the more this reaches the general consciousness of people, they'll realize we had great-tasting chicken before the introduction of antibiotics, uh, and we'll have great-tasting chicken after it's removed in yeah. a non-therapeutic way. Yeah. And I think people will just get that, just yeah. like people got smoking. Yeah, hope and seatbelts, right? And seatbelts. Mark, <laughs> let's talk about what's what's next on the NRDC agenda in terms of furthering this cause. Like, what are you guys, do you have other groups that you're working with that are large institutional buyers like the Urban School Food Alliance? Well, can I just add uh, Please. to Eric's historical point, since I was also a history major, mm-hmm. that industry... <laughs> always raises the economic, this is going to add cost, whether it be taking lead out of gasoline or recycled paper or mm. virtually almost any type of new effort to protect public health, the industry often will say this is going to cost more. And in the end, usually the costs are about the same, and we've seen that time and time again. Yes. Um, and, and you also, the other point I wanted to make is another trend you see is as the scientific evidence mounts, and industry groups often begin to splinter. I mean, Jim Perdue yeah. said uh, this fall that, quote, human-approved antibiotics should not be used to boost production or in place of responsible animal husbandry. So you already have some of the largest chicken producers in the United States essentially breaking from what Dr. Gleason was saying yes. uh, there. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's a good sign as well. Yes, uh, I agree. Our ho- uh, answering your question, our hope is that, um, I mean, the getting rid of 270 polystyrene trays and replacing them with compostable trays, as Eric mentioned, is a huge uh, accomplishment when that is implemented. Mm-hmm. 
and and that's moving forward. They've had this chicken announcement. We're hoping that we can work with them, for example, on uh, serving more fruits and vegetables that have less uh, harmful pesticides. Yes. Apples, other kinds of um, uh, – none of it is unsafe, but uh, like antibiotics, it's – it's a continuum. We're, we need to be moving towards reducing uh, that that type of uh, harmful pesticides in our in the in the farms and and on the food. Yeah. And um, and this is about protecting our kids. Yes, and protecting workers in that case. Um, the other thing, I, well, just as an aside, uh, the use of antibiotics in fruits is kind of an interesting subject to tackle as well. I've often thought I need to do a little more research in that. But you know, apples, for example, apple orchards are routinely treated with antibiotics. I think that's amazing. Anyway, but that's just a little nugget of information I'm throwing out there for you. Um, so let us move on to the idea of, like, if they are changing the um, – when they change the protocols for raising chickens so that they don't have to – they don't need disease prevention uh, antibiotics, they don't need prophylactic use of antibiotics, that implies a much greater change in the industry, um, like the way they raise them the kinds of conditions that they're in and that sort of stuff. And, and to me, that, that is something that I think to go to your point of like, well, you know, eventually these changes don't actually amount to that much money. But in this case, I think they really will uh, amount to that much money. And I'm wondering, like, is Congress um, offering any support uh, for changing these protocols or are they just kind of letting the industry uh, stall and call the shots as they have done for the last couple of decades. Do you guys get a sense of support from congressional leaders? No, we haven't uh, had any to date. Yeah. I think, you know, from the school food perspective, we'd mm-hmm. love that. I mean, one way that Congress could really be supportive of this mm-hmm. is by allocating more community dollars, what they call commodity, I should say, commodity dollars mm-hmm. to school districts to allow them to spend this money directly on food. I yeah. mean, for your listeners to get involved in that way would absolutely be critical. It's just to get Congress, when they go through the, the child nutrition reauthorization exercise, <laughs> more money into commodity food dollars that enable districts to spend more money on food. Yeah. I mean, that could have a, an absolutely powerful multiplying effect on what we're trying to do, and it's just critical. Yes, I would agree. I mean, right now, what is the school food allocation? It's like a dollar ninety something and... And only only ninety something cents goes to each child's actual food. Well, yeah, in New York City, it's different. We spend a, a, approximately a dollar on food. The uh-huh. reimbursement rates are get a little wonkish here, and I don't want to get too much into the detail. But you have okay. different types of categorization, whether free, reduced, or a paid child, oh, that's right. yeah. with different reimbursement rates. Those rates are uniform across the country. So, urban cities have the same rate as the reimbursement rate as rural areas, when, of course, the cost of living and all other kinds of costs are much, much higher. Yes. So it's really important, and this is, again, one of the things that underpins the Urban School Food Alliance, is how can the urban centers be creative uh, and, and smart in trying to make their dollars go further uh, in terms of providing not only leadership but the best quality food to our students. And one way that we've identified is, again, for Congress – the child re, uh, nutrition reauthorization is to put more money into the commodity dollars because that allows us to buy, uh, you know, better quality food, and it's just so critical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I'm I'm out of questions. Do you guys have any comments you want to make about this just, announcement? I would just and... add again that what's great about this um, endeavor is that 
we're targeting some of the the most economically disadvantaged kids yes. in the country and and um, giving them better food. And so it's a, it's a food justice issue, uh, a health issue, and. Um, we we commend the, the schools for for moving forward. Absolutely. Well, it's it's it must be a Herculean effort actually because there are so many schools and so many districts and so many students and meals. Yeah, and I, I just want to publicly thank Mark and uh, his team, Margaret Brown, and some of the other people at NRDC mm. who have been the, the very best partners that we can ask for. So without them, we wouldn't be able to do this. That's yeah. just the just the hand of my heart truth. Yeah. That's fantastic. And Mark, do you guys see yourselves working with, uh, say, colleges and universities or other institutional buyers as you go forward with this? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, also uh, food banks. You know, there's a real uh, trend, uh, not just the schools, but other large uh, purchasers like food banks want to move away from sort of traditional commodity food and and buy more regional and sustainable food. So we've been in conversation with some of the largest food banks. We've had conversations with some of the universities as well and, and others. So the power of the purse, whether it be government or private, uh, is huge. We've seen that again historically in, in changing the market and, and making it a better place for all of us. Well, it's exciting times to be involved in the food industry. I mean, I, you know, I think that reluctantly uh, but, uh, and grudgingly, uh, the, the animal agriculture industry is, is dragging its feet forward. <laughs> incrementally, but it's happening. Um, and that's a good sign. Uh, so I want to um, just give you guys a chance to let people know where your websites are, how they can learn more about the Urban School Food Alliance, and of course, Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, Mark, you do a blog. So why don't you tell people where that um, blog is? Because you okay, have a really well, good yeah, piece well, about this. NRDC is pretty easy. It's nrdc.org is our main website. And there, all of the blogs that I write and Margaret Brown and others is at something called Switchboard. Right. So if you go there to Switchboard, you'll you can find our blogs. And there's a lot of other people on the NRDC food team: Jonathan Kaplan and Eric Olson and others uh, who are real experts on many aspects of this. So there's there's a lot to be uh, read uh, if you go to that that with yeah. Switchboard site on the NRDC site. Lots of information. And um, Eric, school, Urban School Food Alliance. That's just just. UrbanSchoolFoodAlliance.org, yeah. right? Yeah, it's UrbanSchoolFoodAlliance.org. It's mm-hmm. a mouthful, but it's a nice, tasty, mm-hmm. healthy mouthful, like yeah. our antibiotic chicken will be. But right. it's UrbanSchoolFoodAlliance.org. <laughs> That's great. Hey, which one of you guys is the Rhode Islander? Is I'm, I am I am the Rhode Islander, although Eric has, if this radio show went on another half an hour, he could tell you a good story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you'll both come back sometime. We can talk more about this and institutional buying and how to put pressure on the industry to make changes that we all want. Um, but for now, I will let it go and wish you both the happiest of holidays and a very Great. good new year. Thank you so much for joining me today. I thought this was a lovely conversation. And uh, we'll see you next year. Take care, folks. And thanks Great. to my sponsor, Kane Winery. Uh, and, of course, to my beloved engineer, Jack Insley, as always. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.